Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo, and we are so excited for you to be here with us today. If today's your first time ever joining us. Man, you picked a good one. This is a big day. This is kind of a big deal for us. And so we're really glad that you're here. We're celebrating. There's something worth celebrating today. Amen? Amen. So we're here this morning. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Randall Church was founded in 19, excuse me, 1826. And so in that process, uh, there have been a number of Easter gatherings. There were six uh, men and 12 women that formed here in the village way back in 1826. And as they gathered and as they met together, I would argue that I, I can't prove this, I'm not sure, but I doubt that they've missed any Easter Sundays. So this would be our 190th Easter Sunday morning celebration. That's pretty neat, right? Like I said, I can't prove that. So, I mean, let's just celebrate it nonetheless. But the neat thing about that is this church would not exist for 190 years if it was all about Sunday. You understand that? If all we did was meet every Sunday and come together every Sunday, that would not be enough to sustain the life of a church. We are, as a church, more than Sundays. The way that we describe that, and that's been described a number of ways here over the years, but we describe that in those three relationships that we think are vital to the DNA of this church and the DNA to everyone's lives, is that upward, inward, and outward relationships. Relationship with Christ, relationship with the church, relationship with the community. That doesn't happen on a Sunday morning alone. That doesn't happen by coming to church once a week. What happens when you come to church once a week is you come and you celebrate together what has been going on in the DNA and the life of the church the rest of the week. And so we are so glad you're here with us this morning, celebrating with us. It's a big day. We're glad you're here. You made it. Thanks for being here. It's good, all right? Clap your hands again. That was good. So. Part of the church coming together, part of the church being the church is that we live our lives together. Again, more than just Sunday mornings, we're going to interact with each other on a regular basis. We're going to see each other on a regular basis, and we do that in a lot of different ways. Uh, But really what it comes down to is the idea of living life together and doing some of the things that we love together. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I love, or really what's become kind of a uh, value for our family, or a hashtag if you will, is that adventure is a family value. That's like a hashtag that our particular family lives by. Adventure is a family value. And one of the things that we like to do, we went away last week uh, for just a few days and got away and we did some camping. Uh, Some of you have asked, like, what does that look like? What kind of camping did you do? I'll tell you, one of the ideas that Aaron did look up to find out is that there was this island, and you could actually go and camp at the island. Oh, but by the way, there's nothing on the island. Uh, There's a ferry that comes once a day to drop you off and hope that you survive when they come back in the morning the next day. Uh, We didn't do that. We did more of the minivan you pull up and kind of dump everything out the side, flop your tent open, and then cram everything back in. It never goes back the way it's supposed to. You cram everything back in the tent, and and you move on your way. But some of you, how many of you are more extreme than that, like the the hikers, the adventurers type? Will you raise your hand if you're that type? Okay, let's pretend. Okay, pretend that we're that type. Yes, Denise, thank you. I expected a few more adventurous types in the room. That didn't go the way I expected. Anyway, 
Uh, Aaron Richbart, I know, is that type of person. He's taken us out. Uh, there's a group of men that went a couple years ago and climbed in the Adirondacks. And if you've ever done that, you know, packing everything on the back. And I didn't learn until we got there that you can't have a fire there. And so it's cold. Uh, one of the friends that I visited, or not, he's my brother-in-law, we visited last week. He is, he is an adventurer. He's a camper. He, he, he loves to hike. He and my sister, they, they spend multiple weeks a year uh, getting out on the weekend and being able to go and hike and adventure and do their things. Uh, but I recently heard him share the story of his first time out uh, camping, first time out going on a hiking trip. And what he did was uh, he knew that, you know, to sustain life, he needs water. And so he got the biggest backpack that he could purchase, and he got a 24-pack of Dasani water and, and put it in the backpack. And he knew it would be important to have a roof over his head, and so he went to Sam's Club and got the biggest tent that he could find, and it was too big to fit in the backpack, and so he bought some ratchet straps and wrapped them around it and just cranked that thing down until he got it small enough that he could cram it into the backpack. And then he knew that he was going to need to eat, and so uh, he, he thought through this, and he said, well, it would be better if it would be lighter, I suppose, and so uh, he got himself all the mac and cheese that he could find, because that's really lightweight, as you know, uh, but he didn't take it out of the Sam's Club box. He just crammed the whole thing uh, into the backpack. And then he went on his adventure. He went on his hike. And the first day, you know, he and his friends set out, you know, they, they knew they were just getting started, just getting warmed up, so they just set a 16-mile goal for the first day. And he got out of the car and he put the backpack on and nearly fell flat on his back. John Mark only weighs about 130 pounds and his backpack was, you know, 80% of that. And so he went on this hike and I'll tell you, if you've heard him tell the story, I'm telling his story, but it was a debacle. It was a total mess. The sleeping bag that he had was rated for 40 degrees, which sounds pretty good, except that it got a lot colder than that. And he and his friends nearly got hypothermia the first night out on the mountain, and they awkwardly are like cuddling together uh, to try to survive the night. And so their four-day hiking trip turned into a one-day up and back and a Hampton Inn with a jacuzzi. <laughs> but I'll tell you, that was a life-changing experience for John Mark. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, it is a life-changing experience. You go through something like that and you realize, okay, the next time I go out or anytime I've gone camping or hiking with him, he's got his act together. You know, he, he now has a pump that you don't carry 24 bottles of water with you. You actually just take one bottle and you, you purify the water as you go. And all those things that you learn, this was a life-changing experience. Now he's bold. Now he's confident. Now he's wiser as many of us are when we go through life-changing experiences. You know, the greatest life-changing experience is that on Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. The tomb is vacant. This is the greatest life-changing experience possible. And yet many of you know that truth had that information, you've logged in the mistakes, and now you know that truth, and yet you're still cramming 24 bottles of Dasani water into the backpack as if you didn't know the difference. Your life has not made an adjustment to demonstrate the fact that you've gone through this life-changing experience, that you have connected with the God of the universe, 
and yet you're living life in the same way. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? I think that's pretty crazy. I think that's pretty mistaken. I'll tell you, I don't want to live that way. I would rather be a different type of crazy. If you've got your bulletin with you this morning inside of you, you'll find a sermon outline. I think that there's a statement here that describes the different type of crazy that I'm trying to get after this morning. It was printed in the weekly this week by Pascal Emmanuel Gabri, and it says this, Christians are crazy enough to believe that God can be killed. Christians are crazy enough to believe that God can be killed, but not so crazy as to believe that God must stay dead. Christians are crazy enough to believe that the God who spun the universe into existence could be killed, but they're not so crazy to think that he would not come back to life. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human form, came and lived on this earth in a tangible way that you could touch him, see him, read about him in history books, but yet he was God. And so because he was God, when he was crucified on the tree for your sins and for mine, that he paid the ultimate penalty for my sins. And when he came to life, resurrection morning, it changed everything. We live in a day where religion and religious belief is looked at as a matter of personal preference. Well, you believe that, and that's very compelling. But I don't believe that. I believe something different. So that's good for you. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. We'll get a cup of coffee, and we'll move on with our lives. People will say things like, well, all religions are fundamentally the same. They're just packaged a little bit differently. You choose whatever works best for you. Something might be true for you, but maybe that's not true for me. Maybe something's untrue for you, but it is true for me. Truth is based on the way that you feel. We say things like that, but we don't actually believe that. Imagine this. Imagine you go to the bank tomorrow, and you go and you ask that teller, you say, I would like to, and you fill out your deposit slip, I'd like $1,000, please. And the teller says, well, do you feel like there's $1,000 in the bank? Because I don't feel like giving it to you today. Do you feel like, and I said, no, listen, my money is there. I know that I put it there. I know that I deposited it there. And in doing that, I know that it should be there. And that bank teller looks at you, well, that might be true for you, but for me, that's not true. And that's absurd. And the reality is life has all kinds of different things. Like the last thing you'd say was, well, sir, with due respect, that may be true for you, but not true for me. It's a thousand examples in life where we operate knowing that truth matters. Learning that truth is absolute. And so why in the world, when it comes to the most important thing, the greatest thing on earth, the most life-changing thing that could ever happen, do we talk about it in preferences as if it's a different flavor of ice cream? The core of belief is truth. So did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? Yes absolutely, factually true, that is the case. Absolutely true. So how did he do it? What happened there? I'm glad that you asked. Hebrews 
Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using uh, the Bible in front of you, it's a New International Version. It's a black Bible. Pull that out and make your way to Hebrews. It's one of the last books in the New Testament. If you're using a phone or an iPad, make your way to maybe U Version. would be a good way to find it. We're in the New, Ash- New International Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. If you've got a copy of God's Word, that's where we're going to be. Context here, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians, a group of believers who are following after him, but they're in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to their faith. Everywhere they turn, their faith is being dismissed. What they're putting in their faith had better be true because they were going to pay the sacrifice for it. They were going to pay the price for it. Their lives might depend on it. And this is true in our culture as well. I'm not trying to be a doomsday prophet by any means, but you can look and see that things are trending the way that they are moving. It is not, they are not getting gradually better, they are getting gradually worse for a Christian. Things are not trending in a positive direction, they're tracking in a negative direction. Why is that? Well, we, we believe that the end of time is coming. But for these readers, their faith would be tested. For these readers, their freedom would come at a tremendous cost. So again, in your bulletins, if you got that white sheet of paper, we got some fill-ins so you can track with us this morning, so you can see where I'm at, so you can follow along. So we're in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 is where we're starting. Our first fill-in for you this morning is this, mediating the cost of freedom. Mediating the cost of freedom. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Circle, underline, mark that word ransom in your Bible. The New York Times in 2015 had this title of an article, How to Negotiate a Ransom. Make sure they're alive first, says Leslie Edwards, a top hostage negotiation specialist and former British Army officer. Demand to speak to the captive on the phone, or better still, do a video chat. If that is not possible, ask the abductor to answer what Edwards calls a proof-of-life question. Something that the only the kidnapped would know, like something like the name of a pet goldfish. How to negotiate a ransom. See, here in Scripture, the cost of freedom here from sin's grip would not require a proof of life for ransom, but instead a proof of death. Verse 16. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is only in force when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. The basis of this covenant is the death of Christ, and a death has to take place in order for the will to be executed, to give force and validity to the new covenant. So the author is using this illustration of the will and testament. A death must happen in order for it to take effect. He compares it to a will and testament because a will is not something that heirs can negotiate about. If you have dealt with this in your family any time in the past, you've got a will, it's been, it's been set, and you do what the will says. 
There's no arguing with it. That, that's the way that it is. That was the way that the person who set that will up, that was their final testament. That was their final will and testament, and that is how it is executed. We have to take it or leave it as it is. So in mediating the cost of freedom, the first must be, beginning in verse 18, the proof of life. It's your next fill-in. The proof of life. If death is what is going to be behind the cost of freedom, then it must be ensured that that person was living first. It must be ensured that the, the death certificate is not of something that is already dead. Verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without what? Blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Should this message be R-rated? I mean, at the end of the day, look at how many different examples are given of blood being shed. In one sense, the Bible is actually a very bloody book. And think of all those animals that have been sacrificed in the Old Testament way, the Jewish and the Hebrew way of doing things, and how much blood had been shed under the Old Covenant. Think of all the importance that was been put on the blood of the Lord Jesus and what was shed at Calvary. Contextually, the shedding of animal blood did not have the same connotation that it did today. The animal rights activists would lose their minds in this process. But the animal's blood was being shed. Why? Because it would assume the guilt and the responsibility of the people. I shared this story Friday night for you who are here, the Good Friday service. Part of us getting away, we spent just an evening at the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. And there are these fields just full of animals. I didn't know this was part of the Biltmore Estate. It's a large private mansion built by the Vanderbilts. And so uh, as you're there, it was, I grew up on a farm, but I never had sheep growing up. And so you have these fields, and because it was spring, it was time for birthing of the sheep. And so there's, seems like hundreds, if not thousands, of these baby lambs running around. And the younger they were, the whiter they would be. And if you can understand the process of what happens in the Old Testament and what is happening in this Jewish tradition is not only do you sacrifice an animal, you go out and you find the very best, the very purest, the very cutest of those sheep. And they were cute, man. They were running up and down the hill and tripping over each other and tumbling down. And you could, you could literally see them grass staining their white wool, their brand new white wool. And the Old Testament process, the Old Testament covenant they were living under said, go out and find the very best, the most pure, and sacrifice that lamb. And the bloody demonstration here, I mean, it talks about it right here of not only do you, do you sacrifice that lamb, we eat lamb, we eat animals, we understand that, that something has to die in order to get lunch today, we get that. But it's done in a discreet manner. It's done in a, you know, by a butcher in a shop somewhere quietly, you know, as humanely as possible. This was a public display 
Blood is being spread everywhere, being spread over the altar, being dipped, it says here, with, with uh, hyssop branches and being splattered on the people. Why all the blood? It's because blood is the essence of life. That's why those of you who donate blood, when you, when you donate blood, you, you put that needle in your arm. What are you doing? A lot of times a sign on the wall next to you will say, donate life. Give life. Why? Because blood is the proof of life. Blood is the proof of life. Verse 18, excuse me, verse 23 carries us forward to the fading copies. The fading copies. That's a fill-in for you. Verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered instead heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to die and suffer many times since the creation of the world. These sacrifices that were being offered, this blood that was being shed, it says here was a copy. It was merely a copy of the real thing. And when Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, he went into a heavenly place and he did it once and for all. Now, as a matter of illustration, and I'll tell you, it wasn't intended this morning. It's just one of those things. We didn't have enough bulletins printed before you got here today. And so we went and we printed a few more. We copied a few more. So if you got your bulletins, pull it out. There are actually 15 of you that have copies of bulletins. Pull them out. Look. This was not an intended thing, but it actually illustrates this point pretty well. There are 15 of you in this room that have a bulletin on the front cover that is a obvious blemish in contrast to the original. There's just a white, thank you, Hector found it, some of you guys. There's just this white line that's going across our logo on the front of the bulletin. It's not a major thing, but it's a blemish. It's a copy of the original. That copy is, is not as vibrant. The colors are a little bit mistaken. The, the black doesn't match up exactly the way that it's supposed to. All of those colors run together a little bit. Why? Because it's a copy of the original. Some of your translations in verse 23 will say, therefore, when you see that in Scripture, you'll see, well, what is that therefore? It goes back to the previous section, which makes the point that the forgiveness of sins is only possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood sacrifices in the Old Testament are copies of what Jesus Christ would do at the cross. And Christ's sacrifice had so many angles, so many surfaces that was being covered that there was no way. That was why all the different animals had to be sacrificed, and yet still there was blemishes. And yet still there was mistakes. And yet still there were imperfections. And so they'd have to do it again and again and again. I had a professor in college who would often start his class by doing this. He'd say, class, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I will tell you. Then I will tell you what I just told you. Some of you teachers are nodding like, yeah, that's normal. 
Then I'll tell you what I told you, then I'll review. That teacher understood the nature of repetitive. That is a major key to learning. And we who are not used to seeing these physical rituals and, and spiritual things that are going on in this text, the author of Hebrews is doing this. We've talked through this for a couple of weeks, but the author of Hebrews is doing this, is bringing it up again and again and again. Why? So that you can see that they are copies of the original. They're illustrations, demonstrations of the sacrifice that Jesus would make. But they are just faded copies. They are pointing to your next fill-in, the final appearance. Hebrews 9, beginning in the second half of verse 26. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's an illustration that is going on behind this that the Hebrews understood, and we, we can understand a little bit, the idea of yesterday, today, and forever. So if you've got your pencils or pens, you can mark it. Look at the times you see in today's text the words appear. Verse 26 and 27, circle it. Yesterday, he appeared on the earth. What we are celebrating today in relation to Holy Week, relation to Jesus being born in Bethlehem, walking this earth in a physical manner that we can actually historically document, and we know that he did it. Why? Because yesterday, he appeared. Verse 24, we see he appears in heaven. He has appeared in heaven. And on Good Friday, we remember the hours that he spent on the cross and the angst and the pain that he bore for you and for me. On Easter morning, we remember the victory that was won when they came to the grave and the grave was empty, when the disciples ran and told everyone, holy guacamole, Jesus is alive. But he's not on the cross any longer. He's not in the grave any longer. He is appeared in heaven, it says in verse 24. In heaven where he is the mediator for our sins. He has risen. He is alive. He has ascended. In verse 27, we see he will, 28, he will appear again on the earth yesterday, today, and forever. He will come again to set everything straight. He will rescue his people. He will establish his kingdom. He will come victorious because he was, he is, and he is to come. So mediating the cost of freedom, mediating the cost of freedom, there must be proof of life. There must be thrown out the fading copies. They are worthless. They are not going to work. This transaction will not go through using those. And the final appearance will be made by making the choice for freedom. By making the choice for freedom. So imagine, if you will, 
that there is a ransom on your head. You are somewhere in a cold basement, in a jail cell, in a thatched hut somewhere, and you have been, someone has been fighting for you. This mediator has been fighting for your ransom of your release. And he's demonstrated these things, that the paperwork, the copies aren't going to work. It's going to have to be an original document, whatever that might be, that the proof of life, ultimately, that death was going to have to be served. And so if you're in that position, I want to demonstrate a few things that you're probably going to be doing. You're probably going to be looking at death. and trying to come to grips with some of the realities of death. What are some of the realities of death? We are all going to die at some point. But when you're in that jail cell, when you're in that cold basement, when you're in shackles and you realize that might be this afternoon, you start putting things in that box called death that are pretty tangible. See, in Scripture, we learn that death, that we are already spiritually dead, it says in Scripture. If you don't know who Jesus Christ is, if He has not come and indwelled you through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are already dead. But we also know that one day we will physically die. And if you're in that cold, dark place, you might think that might be today. When we also read in Scripture, we read about death. Death is something that is an eternal separation from God. That is a different type of death. So there is a physical, a spiritual, and an eternal death. And so as you're processing through this, when you hear the terms of your ransom, there still is the choice that you have to make of, is it worth it? Is what I'm going through? You still have to accept that. So you're going to think through death that seems like it's on the door, and then you're also going to think through life. You're going to realize how fleeting life really is. Scripture tells us that life is like a vapor, that just a mist that goes away. Like seeing your face, the reflection in a pool, and you splash it and it's gone. You're thinking through how valuable life is and of all the wasted moments that you have in your life, of all that's been thrown out. Because if today's the day that you die, if that ransom isn't enough, then your life is done as you know it. But Romans 3, excuse me, Romans 6, 23 deals with this. Because we find, yes, death is part of our conversation. And if we really start to put pieces together, we realize that sin, anything that we've done that breaks that relationship with God, that separates us from God, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. The wages, that means when you at the end of the month get your paycheck, what are you getting? New York State forces employers, if you have worked, they say, you must get paid. This is how many hours you've worked. This is what you deserve. The wages of what we deserve, of our actions, our behavior, of all the times that we have come short of the glory of God, of all of our sin, is death. 
However, that verse continues. That verse continues to say, but, however, the gift of God is eternal life. And so if you look at these things, the difference between what you have worked for versus what has been given to you, with what all that you can compile together and the worthless pile heap that that really is versus a holy God, the contrast of those things are significant. The contrast of death versus life is real. And it's there and it's in front of you. How does that verse finish? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the mediator between the two. If you've seen this illustration drawn out on a piece of paper before, you've, you've got a gap, a chasm here that cannot be crossed without the mediator, Jesus Christ. And your mediator, Jesus Christ, what has he done? He has mediated for you to the point that he says, you know what, in this negotiation, it's come to my attention that someone is going to have to die and shed their blood. It's come to my attention that all that you've earned are as filthy rags. Your pile of sin is not going to get you out of this scenario. And so what I've negotiated with your hostages, or what I've negotiated, what I have mediated for you, is that I will go in your place. And the reason he can do that, and the reason why Jesus on the cross is so vitally important, is because he bridges that gap. And he says, this is a gift to you if you accept it. It is sealed by God himself who says that the life that I give to you is not just another few days on this planet. It is eternal in nature. It is eternal in nature. And here's how I can prove that I'm powerful enough to negotiate, to mediate this transaction. On Easter Sunday morning, my son will rise from the dead and he will beat the whole system. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus came out of that tomb. He was there for three days, but he could not be held there. He is alive. And so making that choice for freedom, you and I are going to have to contemplate death. For the wages of sin is death. Death is coming. Death is a consequence of our sin. Death is a multifaceted enemy. You're going to have to contemplate life, but the gift of God is eternal life. Life is precious. Life is valuable. Life is fleeting. But you're going to have to contemplate Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he bridges the gap. He mediates for you and for me. Why? Because he lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we could not die. And in doing that, he conquered the enemy that we cannot conquer. And that is why we celebrate 
Easter. As the band comes up this morning, they're going to share a new song for us here at Randall. It is called A Beautiful Name. What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. Why do we sing about Jesus? Why do we have a cross on the wall? Why do we carry this name like a torch? Because the name of Jesus is what connects across that gap. The name of Jesus connects us in a way that we could not do on our own. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine, when he was raised three days later, he conquered all. Dear Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray this truth this morning, that you died on the cross for our sins and that you rose again on the third day. Lord, we pray that this would be a life-changing experience. Lord, that the empty tomb that we celebrate this morning, resurrection morning, 190 times here at Randall Church, in that process, that we, as we celebrate that, Lord, that this would be a life-changing truth. If you're here this morning, this is the first time this truth is connected to you, I pray that you would have the guts to respond, that you say, Jesus, be my mediator. I admit that I'm a sinner. Sinner. I believe in what you did for me on the cross. For those who have heard this again and again and again, that this is one of numerous Easter messages that they have heard. If that's you this morning, I pray that you would leave this place with an attitude that is different, that this was a life-changing experience, that this new wisdom, this knowledge, this power that is in you that wasn't there before because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, that you would live a transformed life. And stop cramming 24 water bottles in your backpack as if nothing changed. God, we love you. We thank you. We know you've got the power to move hearts, to change lives, to move mountains, to bridge the gap for us. We love you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.